From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nurse Mo, and so glad you are joining me again today. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. And before we dive into anything, I want you to take a little pause right now and let's get some walk-in shoes on, or maybe your running shoes, or grab that load of laundry that you haven't folded yet. Let's try to do something productive, preferably something joyful. But if that doesn't work, something at least productive so that as you listen, you're getting some other things done, you're maximizing your time, and hopefully getting outside and moving your body. So I also want to start by saying that um, every now and then I gear up the courage to read the reviews on Amazon and iTunes and those places because I have a very fragile ego and I have to be in the right frame of mind to read criticism and feedback, but it is so helpful, you guys. And I just want to encourage you to keep the feedback coming, keep rating and reviewing. I love it when you say really nice things. It makes my heart really happy. But when you give me specific feedback for maybe the things that you think we can improve, we definitely take that to heart and appreciate your honesty so very much. So one of the funny things recently that I don't remember the name of the iTunes reviewer, but they said I was a great form of infotainment. And I kind of laughed because I had no idea that I'm ever funny on this thing. She made a comment about my sense of humor. And I just thought, wow, I had no idea that I was even being funny, but maybe I'm secretly funny and I have no idea. So my point with that is please keep the feedback coming. Some of you email me personally, and I love that. And I always try to get back to you. If I haven't, it's not that I don't care. It's maybe that I just didn't see it. I do get a lot of emails, but if you put in the subject line, something like, hey, hey, Nurse Mo, read this, then I might check it out more quickly than if it is some spam. You know what I'm saying? Because I do get a lot of that as well. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Well, today I want to talk to you guys about something that I've been working on with my orientee in the last few weeks. So I am a critical care nurse in the ICU. That was redundant. Maybe I am entertaining. I am a nurse in the ICU and currently I'm orienting new people kind of a lot lately. And one of the things that you have to teach a new person, especially newer nurse or someone who's brand new to critical care, is how to prioritize their time, manage their time, and delegate appropriately. So I have a ton of notes about this topic spread out all over my desk. So I apologize in advance if you hear a lot of paper rustling noises. I never promised that the Straight A Nursing podcast was going to be the most highest quality produced podcast you'd ever hear. So for those of you that don't mention the poor production quality quality when you rate it, thank you because it's just me here in my office and sometimes you can hear the cat in the background. So we're definitely not fancy, but we're definitely hoping that we get the information out to you that you need. 
So I'm going to start by telling you a story. And this story is to me like the perfect example of having to delegate, prioritize, and get a whole bunch of shizzle done. That was absolutely crucial. So protecting patient privacy, of course. I'm not going to tell you any details about this patient. And if you do hear something, you can assume that I made that part up. Okay. The point is I had a patient and they were very sick and the plan for the day started out with plan A, which really could be anything. Let's say it was a pneumonia or something like that. So the patient has a pneumonia and I'm totally making this up. This in no way has anything to do with what the patient was actually there for. So let's say our patient had pneumonia. So of course I'm starting out my day. We're talking about respiratory status, respiratory function, weaning from the vent, checking the chest x-ray, looking at the white blood count and making sure all the antibiotics are getting done on time and all of that stuff. And then the patient develops a new problem. And this new problem that the patient is having is that they are bleeding a lot. So as the course of the day went on, it became abundantly clear that this patient was actively bleeding somewhere in their GI tract. And I went on break. And when I came back from break, this is what I walked into. So the place where I work, the break nurses are super competent ICU nurses. So you can go on a break and pass over any level of care to the break nurse and they will continue doing whatever it is you were doing. There was no delay in patient care, which is why I felt comfortable even in the midst of this kind of escalating problem, passing information along to the break nurse for 15 short minutes so that I could go run, get a little snack, come back refreshed. So I come back from my 15 minute break and I walk into... The patient is getting two units of blood simultaneously. The physician is finishing up the placement of a central line. Interventional radiology is on the phone telling me that they're sending a transporter up so that they can bring the patient down right away for life-saving intervention. X-ray has shown up to confirm placement of that central line. And someone has left already and will be back any minute with four units of blood under the massive transfusion protocol. So I was faced with a whole bunch of things that had to all get done kind of at the same time. I had to prioritize. I had to delegate. And we absolutely had to do what was best for this patient, which was get her down to IR immediately. Okay. So the very first thing I thought of as I'm taking 15, 20 seconds to process everything that is happening is A, what resources do I have at my disposal? So by then, chest x-ray has shown up. The transporter from interventional radiology is there. I've got my orientee, a nurse who's got, you know, some experience, but is definitely brand new to critical care. And then I've got the, the nurse who gave me my break. So I've got an experienced critical care nurse. I have those people in the room at my disposal. And I immediately start giving jobs to everyone based on what has to happen in order for A, this blood to get hung and B, the patient to get down to IR immediately. So that central line has just been placed. It is not dressed. I ask my experienced nurse, throw a dressing on there, please. 
As she's doing that, the chest x-ray person is wheeling their chest x-ray equipment into the room. It takes like just a minute to get it kind of set up into the right position. My friend gets the dressing on the central line and then helps the x-ray tech get the plate behind the patient. So that was all within a matter of like 60 seconds. I mean, that was the fastest central line dressing ever done. At that time, I've got my transporter person there. He's just waiting. He's waiting for us to, you know, get this patient out the door so we can get downstairs. So I show him how to hand squeeze those bulbs on the bolus tubing. I show him how to do that so we can get this blood in faster. The two units that are hanging, show him how to do that. And I say, let me know as soon as this blood bag runs dry so I can switch it over to the flush line. He says, yes, I keep an eye on that. And while all this is happening, my orientee and I are going through the massive transfusion protocol and double checking all four units of the blood that, hey, just showed up. So we get all of this stuff done. X-ray takes their picture. The nurse that I had assigned to put the central line dressing on, I assign the task of go tell Dr. So-and-so that the chest x-ray is done so he can look at it right now. So she takes care of that. She comes back a moment later. I'm still checking off blood, but I'm almost done. She comes back a moment later, says the line is good to use. We hook it up. I get my four units hung and we start transfusing this patient immediately. As we are transfusing the blood, the transporter then starts doing all the things that he does to help us out to get out of the room, getting the poles together, whatever. And out we go and we get down there and we get all four units, actually six units of blood in by the time we get downstairs for the intervention. That was an intense 15 minutes, 20 minutes of my life, but it all happened because of teamwork delegation and prioritizing. And there will be times when you have to prioritize and realize, you know, all of these things are really important. What do I do first? And sometimes in order to do more than one thing at a time, you have to delegate to your friends. So in this case, before I could get the blood going through that central line, I had to have it x-rayed. And I had to have the MD look at it. So I made that a top priority. I wanted that line to be secure. So I had her slap that dressing on real quick. While those things were happening, I was going through the process of double checking with my orientee every unit that had come up for the massive transfusion protocol. So we did some things at the same time. The things that absolutely had to get done first got done first. Then we hung the blood and off we went. So... How do you develop that sense of being able to delegate and prioritize and manage your time well? And it all really just starts with practice and being very aware of the shifting nature of priorities in the acute care setting. So one of the very most basic things that you can do to start managing your time well and starting off each shift more or less on a good note is to have what I call a start of shift routine. Now, obviously your start of shift routine is going to probably be very different from mine, depending on A, the way your brain works and B, the type of unit or place that you work in and C, the acuity and number of patients that you have. But for me, working in a critical care environment with two patients, 
This is how I like to start my shift, and maybe this will help you think of ways that you can start your shift so that at least your morning, that first half hour, is predictable. Even if the rest of the day goes off the rails, you've got a foundation upon which to build a successful day. So the first thing that I like to do is obviously I'm going to get report. I don't get there early and look through charts. I started doing that when I was pretty new, but then I found that a lot of times the assignments were still being made when I got there early. So it didn't really help me. So I just started showing up at the regular time and it's been fine. I know some people like to get there early and look through things. And if that's you and that's your routine, go for it. But for me, getting there, getting report first seems to be enough. So I will get report on the patient, go in with the nurse that's leaving and do not really an assessment, but eyeball the patient, see if they're in any distress. If they're not, then okay, great. Get a feel for the room, a feel for what's happening. Are they on a vent? Are they restrained? Are they sedated? Are they on 10 drips? What is their overall picture? How sick are they? And then I will take a moment. See if I have time to check out the H&P, if not the H&P, then the last couple days of notes, just to get a feel for kind of the, the big picture plan, the big picture things that have happened in the last few days. I will look at recent labs. So I definitely always check the CBC and the BMP. And then if they have anything special going on, I want to make sure that I check those results as well. Like, um, for instance, if they've been on a ventilator and maybe we've been trying to wean the vent or we've had to keep going up on their oxygen and peep, then maybe I would check the ABG trends, things like that. So, and it's not so much that I just want to look at that morning's labs. I kind of want to look back and see how they've been trending, especially on the things that are abnormal. For instance, if their white count today is 28 Am I going to panic if yesterday's white count was 33? No, I'm not going to panic. But if yesterday's white count was seven, then oh yeah, there's a problem, right? Okay, so you always want to look a bit at your trend. And then I take a look to see what meds I have and when they're due. So to do this, I have kind of a little, I call it a run sheet. Maybe that, I don't even know if that's a good name. That's just what I call it. And it has spaces for every hour of the day so that I can write down what meds, excuse me, what meds or interventions that are going to be happening at set times so that I can mark them down on my run sheet, get an idea of what they're taking, when I'm going to give it. And if I don't know a med, I have time to look it up real quick and check it out. And then I get in the room and I do my head to toe assessment. Once I've done that, I know what meds they're taking. I know what their labs have been doing. I know what the last couple of days have looked like. That head to toe assessment is so much more valuable to me because I have a context against which to view it. And then if the patient is awake and alert, I will set goals with them, discuss the plan for the day with them. And if they're not, and I'm speaking with the family, I use that time to discuss goals, discuss the plan and provide any education. Of course that is needed. So that's essentially how I start my shift. At some point in there, I will grab my alcohol swabs, my end caps, a couple things from my pockets because there's nothing more frustrating than going into a room and realizing you don't have something so basic as an alcohol swab. I make sure that I've got my scissors, my hemostats in my pocket 
that I have enough pens to get me through the day. And that is about it for the start of the shift. Of course, one of the first things, if you've got a patient who's a total care patient, like maybe it's a vented patient who is sedated, with that head-to-toe assessment, I try to get in my first round of daily care things like the turns, the oral care, if they've got an OG tube, checking the residual, flushing that, flushing my lines, doing all of that kind of basic stuff that has to be done every day. If you can get it done first thing in the morning, even better, fully care, etc. So that's just one idea of how you could start your shift. Obviously, if you work in L&D, you're going to have a completely different start of shift routine. If there is even such a thing as a routine in L&D, I have no idea. So another thing that you can work on for your time management is to really get a feel for how the rest of a typical ICU shift might look. And with that comes the idea that you're constantly reassessing and reprioritizing. So like when I was brand new, and I see this with the newer people that I orient is that you feel like you're bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth from one room to the next, from one priority to the next, from one fire to the next. And I think that might just be a normal part of learning. And as you gain more experience, you start being able to anticipate needs and really understand what can wait a little bit and what needs to happen right now. So one of the things that I, I like to do and I like to advise my new orientees to do is at the very beginning of the shift, if you can and if you have time, is just make a quick list. So maybe this is during report and as things come up, you're hearing about them in report, you're jotting down a little list. I call it my problem list. And it sounds kind of like care planning when you were in nursing school, right? In nursing school, you wrote a care plan that was all of the patient's problems, basically. I mean, in really convoluted, bizarre language. Don't tell the Nanda people I said that, but it's basically their problems. So you're going to just jot down whatever their problems are. And then I like to make a little list as well called, what is the worst thing that could happen? And then put down all of their potential problems. If they're intubated, you know, safety is a potential issue. They could pull lines, they could pull tubes, et cetera. If they're bleeding, well, they could code and die. You know, if they are on pressors, then one of the pumps could stop working and their pressors would stop and then the blood pressure would tank. And what are you going to do and how are you going to prepare? Really, you could get very creative with your what could possibly go wrong list. Try to keep it realistic and in line with your particular patient. And yes, I have had an occasion where I had multiple pressers running on a pump and the pump died. And I had to send someone to the equipment room to get me another pump and plug it in, get everything switched over, which is no easy task programmed in, we were traveling. So going to CT scan. So when we unplugged that pump to take it with us, it died. I went through four pumps before I found one that would work and hold a battery charge long enough for me to travel about 150 feet over to CT scan. So anyway, 
little tip there on uh, being absolutely prepared for the worst. Now, to mitigate that, if I have multiple pressors running, I try not to have them all working off the same brain, the same pump center module, because if one of them goes down, at least my other brains are running my other pressors. So little girl scout tip for you guys. So anyway, you've got your list. I call it the list of all the things, right? And you're going to look at this list and I want you to kind of think about the priority issues that your patient is facing. Some things you absolutely have to address right now. And if you're not sure, ask yourself, if I don't address this now, will the patient suffer harm? And if the answer is yes, then this is a address it now situation. And then you have all of your things that need to be addressed soon. You can't ignore them, but they need to be addressed. Like maybe you noticed an elevated white count on this morning's labs. You probably can tell the doc when they come by, hey, the white count's trending up, blah, blah, blah. You're not calling a code, but you are addressing it in a timely manner. And then there are the things that need to be addressed today. This is the stuff like your routine care, like a dressing change or getting them started on a diet, like those kinds of things that need to be done today. And then the things that help progress the patient towards wellness. Those are the nice to do things that really help them get better, like progressive mobility, um, that's definitely something that I would put into into that category. So you kind of have your A, B, C, D list, right? Have to address it now, need to address it soon, got to get to it at some point today, and it sure would be nice to do this thing to help progress them towards wellness. So taking that into account, like the story that I shared with you earlier, in that story, there were like three or four things that were all A-level. They all had to happen right now or the patient was going to suffer serious harm. So in that case, you need to delegate and pull your resources and be very appropriate with what you're delegating. So in my example, if you recall, I had at my disposal myself an orientee who knew how to be a nurse, but didn't know how to be an ICU nurse yet. I had a seasoned critical care RN and I had the guy from transport. So of all the jobs that I need to get done, I knew that my orientee had done a central line dressing before, but probably wasn't super fast at it yet. And I needed it to be done super fast. So I gave that job to my critical care friend. The transporter guy is not a nurse, but he can squeeze a bulb and let me know when the bag's empty. So I gave him that job. And then my orientee, who's been a nurse for a while and knows how to check blood, I gave him and me the job of checking the blood. So whenever you delegate, and you will be delegating a lot, and a lot of times you're going to delegate to unlicensed personnel, nursing assistants, PCTs, patient care techs, whatever your uh, hospital facility calls them, the appropriate thing to do when you're delegating is you know, delegate an appropriate task, make sure that the instruction for that task is clear and appropriate, make sure that it is appropriate for the patient and the situation to have this person doing this task and following up to ensure that the task was done. At that time, I was in the room. I knew it was all being done. I kept an eye on the transporter guy and his excellent blood squeezing skills. And he did a fabulous job. Um, I checked that the central line was placed, um, or the central line dressing was placed and we got the blood going and everything was fine. So 
If you've got competing priorities, multiple things that really need to happen at the same time, the next question you want to ask yourself is, well, A, what needs to be done? And if there's two different things that need to be done, one of them might be able to be done super fast and one might be done in a slightly longer time frame. For instance, I knew that my friend could slap a central line dressing on faster than I could check four units of blood. So I, I asked her to do that task before I started checking my blood. I could get that going and then get into checking my blood. If I started checking my blood and I did not want to be interrupted while I was checking four units of blood, that would not be safe. So I delegated that quick task to her and then I did a few minutes of double checking blood. Let's say your patient has a low hemoglobin and their oxygen level is low as well. Well, you can't ignore a low hemoglobin. Let's say it's pretty low. Let's say it's like in the sixes, okay? So it's pretty low um, and their oxygen level is also pretty low. Well, obviously, maybe those two things are related, but there's two things you can do right now. You can get blood into this patient and you can get oxygen into this patient. Well, giving blood to this patient is going to take a little bit longer then giving them some oxygen. So slap the oxygen on, right? And then you'll get the blood going. So I like to ask myself, what can I do right now in this moment that is going to help the patient? So in that case, you could throw some oxygen on in about 10 seconds versus the hour it might take to get blood ordered and up to your patient. And then let's say your patient has a whole bunch of meds to give. And obviously, they're all due at 9 o'clock, right? Um, maybe there's 20 PO meds. Okay, maybe that's a lot. Maybe there's like 12 or 15 PO meds or meds that you're going to give via uh, their OG tube. Or they're a little old lady, bless their hearts, that like to take one pill at a time and have to pause and put their oxygen back on in between each one. And it will take literally 15 or 20 minutes to get these, these pills into your patient. At the same time, you've got something like an antibiotic to give, and it's an IV antibiotic. So are you going to delay putting up that IV antibiotic for the 20 minutes it's going to take you to give this sweet little old lady all of her pills and her laxatives? No, you're going to give your antibiotic, get it infusing, because that's a quick thing you can do. And then while it's infusing, you're standing there giving your 20 meds, talking with the, her cute husband about their cat that they've left at home or whatever. And you're getting essentially two important things done at the same time. But the one that you can do fastest, you're doing first. Okay. And then, so as you're prioritizing and as you're going about your day and you've got you know, what you appear, what, what appears to you to be conflicting priorities or, um, you know, things that are at war with each other, maybe because you've got two different patients and they each have their own priorities instead of problems, or because you've got one patient and they've just got so many problems and you're not sure which ones to deal with first. These are some things that I, I kind of run through my head as I'm thinking things through. And one of them is, is this an acute problem or a chronic problem? Acute problems will typically take precedence over chronic problems. Note that you can have an acute exacerbation of a chronic problem. The perfect example of that is an acute um, CHF exacerbation or an acute COPD exacerbation. The patient has CHF or they have COPD, but they kind of live with it and their body, you know, manages 
fine as long as nothing is tipping them over the edge. Well, then they get tipped over the edge and now they've got an acute exacerbation of their respiratory compromise. So, but a lot of times your patient may have an acute problem and a chronic problem. And typically you're going to be addressing the acute problems with a greater sense of urgency than their chronic problems. Unless of course their chronic problem is having an acute exacerbation. The other question we just talked about is what can I fix the most quickly? If you've got a choice between two interventions and they can both equally benefit the patient, do the fastest one first, the easiest one first. Ask yourself, what could happen to the patient if I fail to act on this right now? If you're ever not sure if you need to take as a course of action, ask yourself that question and then it becomes abundantly clear that yes, you got to call somebody, you got to do something. So asking yourself, what could happen if I fail to act is a very important question. And then you can also ask yourself, what can I delegate in order to maximize results? And delegating is great when you've got the resources to delegate to. I realize that that is a luxury in a lot of places, but if you have the resources to delegate to, then use them and use them wisely and appropriately. And then you can ask, what can I safely delay so that I can get something more important done right now? So let's say you've got a patient who's having some fluid overload issues. Maybe their lungs sound a little crackly, their sats are dropping, or you have to keep going up, 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 up on your O's. And you're thinking, pretty sure this patient needs a a diuretic, maybe needs some Lasix. But then your other patient has a blood sugar due before their lunch. Well, as much as I would love for everybody to eat at the exact right time every day, Calling the doc and getting an order for that IV diuretic is probably more important, hint, hint, than going and checking the blood sugar of a patient that gets lunch. Now, you could probably delegate that task if you have someone to delegate that task to, but safely knowing what you can delay so that you can take care of more crucial things is a very important component of prioritizing and managing your time. Also knowing what you can do as the nurse versus what you need to wait and get an order for. So a lot of times, let's say your patient's having a little bit of respiratory trouble. A lot of times, something as simple as having them sit up really high and high fowlers, cough, really clear their lungs will go a long way towards helping them. And you may not even need to call and get an order for anything, but do the things you can do as you're waiting for that doc to call you back. And then a lot of times you have scans you need to go to, dialysis that needs to get done, all kinds of things. And they've all been ordered by the physician But really, scheduling when those things happen is really pretty much up to you. You are the coordinator of care for that patient. So you have to really think about how you schedule your day and those interventions for the maximum benefit of your patient. So those are just some questions that you can kind of ask yourself. And I actually just wrote about this prioritization topic on the website. So all these questions are there if you wanted to check it out um, so that you weren't stopping and trying to write notes as you were driving, right? Nobody did that. So we've talked about a start of shift routine. We have talked about prioritizing. So let's take a look at how it all might hang together in a 
somewhat typical ICU kind of day that I have, again, completely made up, right? So I'm not talking about any specific patients here, but just kind of like how a typical flow um, could possibly work. So let's see here. Let me shuffle through my papers. Um, like I said, um, I was talking earlier about how when I was new and how I noticed this in other new nurses, especially in the critical care setting, is this bouncing back and forth, back and forth situation. So once my preceptor, who I love dearly, told me that this was not normal, I realized I had to do something about it. And honestly, you guys, one of the things that contributed to this as a new ICU nurse, and I was a brand new nurse in the ICU, by the way, was I was terrified that something was going to happen to my patients. And I felt like I had to constantly have my eyeballs on them at all times. So I knew that this was not normal because I did not notice all the other nurses constantly going from room to room to room to watch and put eyeballs on their patients. We have them on the monitor. We know kind of when things go squirrely, like even knowing when your patient's agitated because the heart rate's going up on the monitor is huge, right? Well, I didn't have that kind of nursey sense or spidey sense, as I call it. I just had to go look and make sure that they were okay. And I'm seriously telling you, I was back and forth to my rooms constantly. So I set a goal of, okay, I'm going to go 10 minutes without going into my patient's room. <laughs> they're going to have everything they need. I'm going to give them 10 minutes and then I will just go peek at them and make sure they're fine as I slowly, slowly, slowly space that out so that now I can go a reasonable amount of time. And usually we're sitting right there and you can see them from where you are. But that really contributed to my ping pong, ping pong ball syndrome, as I like to call it. So let's take a look at how maybe a typical kind of day would look. One of the things that I started doing when I was new was I knew I wanted to go into the room and do a thing. Like maybe I knew I wanted to go in and, and get their urine output, but I knew if I go in there just to do that, that's a silly waste of time. I'm going to be back in there five times in the next 20 minutes doing one little thing. So I would keep a little running list of all the things that I wanted to do the next time I went into the room. And when I was brand new, yes, I actually wrote these things down because I couldn't remember all of them. So I might make a list that said I was going to turn, do oral care, print out my pressure monitoring waveforms, label my IV lines, hang that new bag of fluids, Check their urine output, get a temp, check their NG tube residual, flush their NG tube per protocol. I had a list. Like I was going to do all those things the next time I went in. Otherwise, I was going to be in and out of that room about eight times in the next hour. And that's not a good use of your time. So generally, I found that if I could kind of cluster and do at least five things every time I went in, that really cut down on those little, oh, I'm just going to go. Oh, just got to, oh, I forgot. Oh, got to go back in little kinds of things. So maybe for you, this is super obvious, but I had to learn that and drill that into my head and make it a habit. But once I started doing that, my day started flowing a lot more smoothly. And I found that I was no longer just focusing on the next task because brand new nurses, uh, the novice, right, is very task oriented. I could kind of pull uh, ahead of that slightly and start looking at my patient more in a big picture kind of global way. And then of course, I developed my start of shift routine. And that helped immensely. 
Um, so I would say mornings, like that very first hour is usually a little bit predictable just because of the getting report, doing all those start of shift things and doing my head to toe assessment. But then from there, anything can happen and it could go off the rails at any minute. But let's take a look at what a day might look like. Let's say you've got two patients. You've got patient A who is really sick, who's on a vent and has titratable drips. And when we say titratable drips, we're talking about things like uh, vasopressors like levofed or um, epinephrine, or maybe they're on fentanyl, propofol, presidex, things like that, that you're going up and down, up and down, up and down insulin, where you're constantly adjusting the flow rate. That's what I mean when I say titratable drip for those of you who haven't gotten into your clinical care um, or uh, um, clinicals yet. So we've got patient A who's super sick on a vent with drips and patient B who's probably not that sick, maybe going to transfer out today. So your day might look like this. So that very first half hour, we're getting report, we're greeting everybody, we're doing that bedside check. If your patient is in for a neuro problem, the standard of care is to do a bedside neuro exam with the nurse who is leaving because the neuro evaluation is so subjective and it is very easy to say, hmm, I wonder if... Alyssa saw the patient, like their movement of the left arm to her, was that strong movement or was that weak movement? Is it different? I really wish I knew. Well, you'll know because you're going to do a bedside check with Alyssa before she goes home. Um, if they're in for lungs, maybe do a quick look at their O2 sat, maybe listen to their lungs real quick, look at their vent settings, ask the patient if they're having any trouble breathing. Just that super, super focused assessment. You're not pulling out all of your tools and doing the complete head to toe yet. If they're a surgical patient, you're going to peek at their dressing with the nurse you're getting report from, and you're going to ask about pain. You're going to make sure there's no pools of blood in the bed. Okay. So just those very basic, quick things, whatever scariest possible thing could happen, make sure it's not happening right now. Okay. And then I'm going to ask the patient, what can I bring for you or what can I do for you next time I come in and I'll be back in about half an hour with your morning meds or whatever. So I found that before you leave, if you let the patient know when you'll be back and asking what can I do for you in the meantime or what can I bring when I come back in, then that's going to cut down on the unnecessary call lights for 500 little requests. And it helps them know that you're planning ahead and really organizing their care. So let's say that was 6.45 in the morning to 7.15. We did all of those things. And then from about 7.15 to 7.30, I'm going to take a little time. Like I said, I'm filling my pockets with all the tools that I need. We print EKG strips on every patient every morning. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to look at those labs, look at the notes, look at the chart, see if I need to replace any electrolytes, write out the schedule of meds, if I've got to recheck any labs, what time I'm going to do those, uh, write down my to-do items, and then hopefully nothing unexpected has happened. Maybe patient B is on a sliding scale with insulin and his breakfast tray, so I'm going to grab the glucometer and the tray at the same time and take them into the room. So... I'm going to, unless my sick patient needs me, I'm going to real quick deliver that tray and check a blood sugar. And then around 7.30 to 8, I am doing that full, very thorough head-to-toe assessment, and I'm starting on my sickest patient. So maybe I'll chart it 
Maybe not. It really just depends on the flow of the day. I know that we're supposed to chart in real time and whoever said that probably has never actually tried to do it on any kind of a consistent basis. But if you can, great. So do that full head to toe. Um, If it's a typical ICU patient, you may have pressure waveforms to level and print. I'm going to do that. And that would be your art line, your CVP line. If you're in a cardiovascular ICU, that would be the, the PA catheter and those things. You may have drips to titrate. This is when I would do the turn, the oil care, those daily kind of things, the NG tube or OG tube residual and flushing, doing all of that. I'll take a quick survey of the room, see what supplies I'm going to need for the day, what's already there. You'd be surprised. I once counted about 18 rolls of tape in a patient's room because someone, and it was an isolation room. So once something goes into an isolation room, it stays or it goes in the garbage. We can't pull it back out and use it. So um, a roll of tape brought in seemingly multiple people every day until there was a huge pile. So look around, see what inventory you already have. Try to be a good steward of your hospital's resources and see what supplies you need to bring the next time you come in because you're going to cluster your your activities. And this is a great time to update the patient and the family on the general plan, the general goals for the day, and then find out, hey, is there anything that you really want to get accomplished today? And they may say, oh, man, I really want to wash my hair um, or I just want to sit up in the chair hair for a while, or I want to go for a walk or whatever it is. I want to call my family. Can you help me get on Skype? I don't know, whatever it is. See what's really important to them that day and see how you can work it into the plan with them. So then, you know, early before nine o'clock meds, you know, maybe the next thing I'm going to do like 8 to 8.30 is I'm going to go do that full head to toe on patient B, do all those same things for them that I did for the first one and make sure nobody's in any distress. You know, this would be a great time to get patient B up out of bed, sitting in the chair. If you haven't already, or he has not already gotten himself up or the tech hasn't gotten him up already to eat his breakfast. And, you know, if my meds are due at nine and I'm going into the patient's room at eight, eight fifteen, I'm going to take the nine o'clock meds in with me because we have an hour window before and after. Don't wait until nine to start giving your nine o'clock meds or you're going to hate your life and regret that decision with every fiber of your being. So then around eight thirty to nine thirty, you know, this is like meds time with patients And again, just prioritizing the meds that you're giving. Let's say your sick patient has multiple antibiotics, but only one available port. They're super sick. So it's not like you're you're likely to get another IV going on them with any kind of success or any kind of timely success. So really thinking about which antibiotics of these three that she has do, right, all at the same time, what am I going to hang up first? And let's say they've got um, a 30-minute and maybe two 30-minute ones and a 60 minute one. So if they're all due at nine, I can start one of the 30 minute ones at eight, the second 30 minute one at eight 30, and then the hour one at nine. So technically they're all done on time. You're going to put the shortest running one in first, typically so that you can get it in an infusing and that second one initiating as soon as possible. In the ICU where I work, we have rounds between 10 and noon. 
depending on what side you're working on. So this would be the time of day around 930 that I start getting ready for rounds if I haven't already. The way we do rounds, we have a list of items that we address, a bunch of core measure things and abnormal labs, significant events in the last 24 hours, their mobility, their pain, their diet, what they're currently, um, what drips are currently running, their I's and O's, their plan for the day, et cetera, et cetera. So I get ready for that. And this is the, the great time. If the doctor hasn't already pre-rounded and come by, this is a time to get some things taken care of, all your needs addressed for the patient. And then if I haven't charted anything, of course, I'm going to start really trying to get that daily assessment in there. I always try to get my sepsis summary in first thing because obviously sepsis is one of those things that you want to catch ASAP. So I do a sepsis screen early in the day, but this would be the time where I'm doing like getting my head to toe assessment charted, all the daily things like the Braden scale, et cetera. I want to try to get those done early ish. And then we have rounds and that's great. And then I'm kind of on my routine for the day after rounds. The only, um, real wrench is, well, obviously with rounds comes a whole bunch of new orders. So then you really have to take a look at the plan that you came up with, with the timings of your meds and your interventions, and you may need to reprioritize and move things around. So just making note of that. If you're traveling with your patient, coordinating all of that, my best advice for traveling is just do it and get it over with so you can get back. Um, definitely always puts a kink into your day. And the later in the day it happens, the more it's going to risk throwing things off and causing you to get out late. And then if uh, let's say nothing else goes wrong, nothing else throws any wrenches into your plan. Everything you did, you prioritized beautifully, you time managed beautifully. It's 1700. This is the time of the day when we do I's and O's on my unit. So that's when we clear our pumps, get all the urine tallied up, We've, of course, been charting it every couple of hours at least, but um, just making sure that those totals are in and check for any pending labs, maybe that I'm waiting for so that I can report the results to night shift or call the lab to ask where the heck is that I sent that magnesium down hours ago. So just um, starting to wrap up the day. If there's a, a daily item that I haven't gotten to yet, like a dressing change, or wound care, something like that, I will do it at this time. And then, of course, around 1600, 1615, if I haven't already, I will start going through my report sheet and writing down all the things that maybe changed from when I got report this morning, any significant findings, so that I can give an excellent end of shift report when the night shift nurse comes in. And then our night shift comes in at 1845, and report takes about 15 minutes per patient, maybe 12 to 15 minutes per patient. It really depends. Some patients take a lot longer just because they have so much going on. But typically, that is how a day in the ICU kind of looks, provided nothing comes up that's unexpected, which I hope you do realize is pretty rare event. Okay, so what if you're thinking about time management for your schoolwork and how you manage those days. You're not really concerned so much about on the job or clinicals. You're just trying to get through each week as a nursing student, which I think is probably one of the busiest people on the planet. And so 
To that end, there is a post on the website about time management in nursing school, but I'll talk about those things here. I realize some of you are more auditory learners and you really like hearing things on the podcast. So we'll talk about that here as well. So I would say that time management in nursing school is one of the biggest hurdles that nursing students face, especially if they came into it maybe with not the best time management skills under their belts from their prerequisites, um, or maybe, you know, doing those late night study sessions, pulling those all-nighters was fine for you when you were taking your prereqs, but when you're in nursing school and your schedule is just so much more intense, a lot of times those things just don't work, and that lack of sleep and the continued stress is really going to cause you some harm, but... I am a huge proponent of excellent planning, and I do believe that with good planning, you can be the master of your schedule. You can get to bed on time. You can still see your family and friends. You can still exercise. You can still do all of those things, but it really requires a pretty fierce adherence to the plan that you make, and the study habits that you're going to develop as a rock star nursing student. So the first thing I'm going to advise most nursing students to do is to get some kind of a paper planner. Now, I'm not saying that just because I design and sell the most awesome nursing student planners in the world. I'm telling you that because I honestly don't see how anyone can get through nursing school with their sanity intact without it. Now, I'm not saying that my planner is the only one that works for nursing school. Of course not. That would be silly. Mine is pretty awesome though. But I just want you to have some method of writing out your schedule in whatever way works the best for you. So um, I know a lot of people use their phone to keep track of things. To me, that's not quite enough. I mean, you can put that you have an exam on a certain day or a class on a certain day or a clinical on a certain day. But in nursing school, there's so many just tedious, microcosmic hundreds of to-do items and random things to remember that I really feel like list making is crucial to getting everything done and then blocking out your time. And I just find that when you can look at it laid out in front of you in a weekly format that you can really see everything that you have to do so that you A, have a realistic expectation for how you spend your time and what you can get done so that you can get to bed on time. And if I say that about 50 times, it's because getting to bed on time was seriously my number one goal in nursing school because I cannot function on less than like six hours of sleep. Six would be pushing it and I probably can't do that for more than a couple of days. So my goal every night, I'm gonna be in bed asleep by 11 And I absolutely did that. I never stayed up past 11, not once when I was in nursing school. And I know a lot of my classmates would pull all-nighters, regularly be up past midnight, two, three in the morning, dragging into an 8 a.m. class, and they looked miserable. Granted, they were a lot younger than I was, so maybe they can handle that. But I just don't think that that's healthy or good for you. So there's my pitch for using some kind of a paper organizer while you're in school. So I like ones that have monthly and weekly spreads and there's tons of them out there. The reason I like a monthly spread is you can get a global view, obviously, of your month. You can see, okay, this is March and I've got four exams, two group projects, two papers, 
aclinical days. I mean, you can just kind of look at it and go, okay, this is my month. This is what's happening. I've got a birthday party. I'm going to make time for that. You know, really getting a global view. And then that weekly view is where you will start chunking out your time and really planning when you're going to work on specific tasks. So before we even get to that, I want you to make a list. So each week, maybe I always did this like Sunday evening is I would go through my course schedule the syllabus, whatever, and make a to-do list for that week. And that list would have all the quizzes that I had to get done. And we had mountains of quizzes, quizzes to get done, modules, assignments, tasks, um, projects that were due, papers that were due, exams for that week, just everything that has to be done that week, I put in list format. And I would do it on typically on Sunday nights before I started my week. And believe it or not, I really like doing things like this. So it was kind of relaxing for me. Um, But I do realize that I'm weird in that regard. But take the time, make the list. And then I would block out each day. So in order to really know what you can get done in what amount of time, you have to actually assign a time value to that task. So Blocking out time on your calendar helps you really know if you're going to be up all night, for instance, or what you can commit to. So let's say you have an exam on Friday and you know you need to study for that exam and you know that your limit for being able to pay attention on any particular topic is about two hours at a time. So you're going to block out some two hour chunks of time all week long up until that exam, okay? So that you know, all right, my study time, done. And I'm gonna rock that exam. If you've got clinical prep, block out the appropriate amount of time for that. I mean, typically clinical preps would, I'd get to the hospital around two, get my patient, get home, and probably work on it until about 10 o'clock that night. So clinical preps took a really long time And to make sure that I didn't overcommit, I blocked out that time. Obviously, you're going to block out your clinical days as well because you're not going to get anything else done while you're at clinical. And then taking a look at your quizzes and things. If you know that a quiz takes you about 30 minutes and you have four quizzes that are due on Monday, well, then you know you're going to block out a couple of hours on Monday to do quizzes. So just actually estimating realistic amounts of time for each and everything on that to do list. And then you can really get an idea of what needs to be done, and when it needs to be done. So one word of caution, I want you to be really realistic when you're doing this. So if you are terrible at writing papers, do not think, oh, I'm just going to bang this out um, the night before because that's setting yourself up for failure. Start the task early and give yourself ample time, especially to do those things that you don't feel that strong in. If writing papers for you is super simple, then yes, you are going to schedule your time a little bit differently. And then when I was a student, I didn't just block out time for all of my schoolwork. I blocked out time for essentially everything when I would eat lunch. And I, so I would make sure I'm taking a lunch break. I'm getting away from my desk for 30 minutes or an hour. Um, I have to do all these discussion board postings. Those things can really add up. I would block in the errands that I had to run or exercise that I was planning to do. 
absolutely every single thing I did, I blocked out time for. So if that sounds like overkill to you, I don't know what to tell you because it really did work. I would ask that you just try it maybe for a week or two and see and see what you think. So um, one of the nice things about having your time blocked out in this way is sometimes you're going to get something done faster than you thought. And guess what happens when this occurs? You just discovered some free unexpected time. And my advice would be to use that time joyfully and not spend it doing more schoolwork because you already basically paid for the time with your schedule. Now you've got, it's like getting change back, right? You're going to put that change in the bank or you're going to spend it on something fun. I'd say spend it on something fun. Okay. So then the other thing that I would suggest that you do, at least this worked for me, is to multitask. And one of the ways that I multitasked as a nursing student was I started making audio notes and I would listen to those audio notes while I did the laundry, ran my errands, went for a walk. I remember when I figured this out, I was taking organic chemistry and I realized I could read my notes and kind of quiz myself on things. Actually, was it? Yeah, it was organic chemistry because I remember being at the park that I loved that I hadn't been to in months and going for a run. This was back when I was sort of in shape and studying at the same time. And it was the best feeling just to be outside and also know that I was still getting something done for school. I really felt like I had like discovered a great secret or something. So multitasking in that regard was huge. And that's essentially how this podcast was born. I mean, not not technically, but it's what gave me the idea to continue doing things like this so that I could help you guys study while you're out walking or running or folding your laundry or taking your dog to the park or whatever. So multitasking is great. And then the other thing I would do is just, I want you to really be cognizant of those things that waste your time. I know what my time wasters are. Okay. It is, um, social media, big time waster, right? You can go down the rabbit hole, watching cat videos on YouTube. Um, obviously television is a big time waster for me. I think I binged watched Fargo season one yesterday, way more than I should have, but, um, I really just needed a down day actually, to be, to be honest, but know what things waste your time. If social media and things like that waste your time, there's apps out there that will block your usage of those and limit your time or at least track your time. So you're aware of it. So making a conscious effort to stay away from those things that are a waste of time. I always say that study groups were a huge waste of time. Um, I wrote a post about it. It's called why study groups are a waste of time and how you can make them work. So if you are finding that you are attending a study group of more than three people and it is taking up hours of your time and you still leave feeling unfulfilled, then I invite you to go to the website at straightynursingstudent.com and do a search for study groups and read that post. I highly highly recommend against large study groups because the risk for them, A, not meeting the needs of you specifically is very high. And the risk for it becoming social hour is extremely high. Not that we don't need social hour, but let's have a different, a different way of getting that right. Um, so again, just what's wasting your time, how to get rid of it.
And then I want you to make maximum use of your downtime. So, you know, like maybe you have a doctor's appointment and you're waiting or you're standing in line at the post office. So this is the time when I would pull out my phone and do NCLEX questions. I would, I bought one of those, uh, I think it was Mosby's or Saunders. I can't remember, but it was an NCLEX questions app. I think I paid like 30 bucks for it and it was so worth it. And I would just practice NCLEX questions or do flashcards. The flashcard app I used to use called GFlash is no longer no longer in existence. And it's a shame because it was awesome. But if you can make flashcards on your phone using one of the other mini um, flashcard apps out there, then you can make use of those small snippets of downtime. Not necessarily where you're going to pull out and learn new material. I wouldn't use those small snippets of time to learn new material, but to review material you've already learned. So like I said, doing NCLEX questions or running through some flashcards. And then my other best piece of advice is one and done. So if your school has a kind heart and gives you multiple opportunities to pass critical skills and critical exams, my advice would be to pretend that they do not. So for instance, there are many checkoffs that are critical in nursing school, right? Like med, uh, giving meds safely. And your school might give you two or three tries to pass that skills checkoff before they sit you down and say, I really don't think nursing is for you. If you know that you've got three tries to do something, are you going to study and prepare as effectively as if you knew you only had one try? Same for dosage calculations. Oftentimes, you'll have multiple attempts to pass that or your exit testing each semester. Most schools will give you a couple of attempts, maybe three. My advice Pretend those multiple attempts do not exist and really do your very best to pass those things on the very first try. Because if you have to come back in a few days and redo it, guess what? You're still preparing and studying for that checkoff or that test. So now you've got one more thing on your plate and it's the stress and it's hanging over your head. Of course, let's say you do prepare and you do your best and you don't pass. It's not the end of the world. You will pass the next time because you are going to study even harder but just trying to have that one and done approach is really helpful. When I watched my classmates struggle, a lot of them struggled because they weren't passing these things on the first try and then their schedules just got exponentially heavier because of the retakes and the redos. So that was kind of a lot of talking about time management and prioritizing. I hope that it helped. If you go to the website and you prefer to kind of reiterate these things by having it in writing, if you search for time management, search for prioritizing, then I think most of these topics, if not all of the things that I just said will come up and let me know if you have any other questions or ideas and please keep your feedback and your ratings and reviews coming. We take that very seriously and very much to heart. Somebody gave me some great feedback and I don't remember your name, but if you're the person who said it would be helpful if I um, were more clear about topics that I'm discussing, because some of you are not sitting at your desk taking notes. And then I, when I refer back to something, making sure that I tell you what I'm referring back to, that was excellent feedback. And I appreciate that. So next time I do a more topic specific, like, um, 
lecture style podcast. I am definitely going to do that. And I hope that it helps and hope that it helps you. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed your walk or your time with your dog in the dog park or that your laundry all got folded or whatever it is you were doing. And then we'll check back in a couple of weeks for our next episode. I'm not sure yet what we'll be talking about. I had an idea before I started this and of course I've forgotten it, but it'll come back to me if it was a good idea. So again, thank you guys very much. If you are interested in the planner that I talked about, you can check it out. Go to my website, click on the planner at the top bar. If they're not all sold out, they will all sell out, but then we will have more available in October for the January uh, to December calendar year. All right, that's it. Take care, everybody, and be safe out there. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.